Hey everybody, I'm Brian Clapp, VP of Content and Engaged Learning at WorkinSports.com, and this is the Work in Sports Podcast. When I say cornhole, flag football, spike ball, and break dancing, it probably sounds to you like the planning stage for an epic 4th of July party. Am I right? Add in some axe throwing, little karate combat, and the party starts to get a little intense. The reality is, these competitive activities that are well-suited for a decked-out summer affair are taking the sports industry by storm. These aren't fringe activities. They are high-growth sports properties popping up around the globe, invested in by major brands, broadcast in prime slots, and making their way into the Olympic Games. Yeah, you heard that right. Olympic Games. We so often focus on the major sports and normalize them as standard. Hitting a little white ball with a club toward a hole 500 yards away seems normal. But tossing a beanbag toward a hole 24 feet away is fringe. Bouncing a rubber bladder covered in leather and throwing into a basket at an arbitrary 10-foot height is extremely normal. But tossing an axe into a wood block target 15 feet away seems strange. As today's guest Gabby Rowe, president and founder of Maestro, says, Every sport was a crazy-ass idea at one point. Truer words have never been spoken. You see, Roe himself is a little on the fringe. A highly competitive lacrosse player, he played professionally for the Philadelphia Wings in the National Lacrosse League, spent several years as a chief executive with the AVP, Professional Beach Volleyball Circuit, and helped launch Major League Lacrosse. He's always gravitated towards sports with upside, slightly off the beaten path, but with the potential to be great. His company, Maestro, focuses on these high-growth sports properties and assists them in all the various stages of their growth cycle. Sponsorships, venues, business planning, marketing, broadcast deals. This is a fascinating discussion into a side of the sports industry we don't often talk about, but really should. Here he is, Gabby Rowe, president and founder of Maestro. Hey, Gabby, what's happening? I'm great. How are you? I'm doing really well. I'm excited to talk to you. We've been going around trying to make this happen for a while now, so I'm glad that we were able to have this conversation today. Let's jump into this. I've read before where you've described Maestro as a growth engine for high growth sports in various stages of their development. So this is a podcast. You can expand upon that. You can let us know a little bit more. How would you articulate the mission of Maestro? What are you guys up to? What's the big plan? Well, Uh, Not by design, but just by happenstance, I got involved on the business side of emerging new creative fledgling sports at a young age, regardless of what you want to call it. Um, I got involved with the sport of beach soccer when I was 22 years old. Um, We saw it being played recreationally on a beach. A friend of mine and I did, and it looked awesome. And we thought hey, if I could take this world's most popular sport of beach soccer and give it some element of form and structure, um, you know, we might be on to something. At the time, I was living in Southern California where beach volleyball was very popular. And I thought to myself, if you can get that kind of hip, cool Southern California vibe going for the world's most popular sport, maybe that combination could be pretty cool. So at, at the ripe age of 22, my business partner and I wrote a business plan for that company and were able to get it funded. Um, and we were off and running. 
Uh, we made a million mistakes uh, trying to get beach soccer off the ground, but figured it out sort of after three or four years, realized the business really needed to be uh, based internationally because we weren't doing that well financially in the United States, but we're doing well outside of the United States. So I actually bought my partner out, moved the company to Europe, placed a headquarters in Monte Carlo and started running the business out of there. And that's when it really started to take big strides. Uh, to fast forward and to get to the answer to the question, um, built that company, sold it three years later, then got involved into developing a professional outdoor lacrosse league, wrote the business plan and started Major League Lacrosse with a group of partners, including uh, fitness guru Body by Jake, who was the main person behind it. But I ran the business development. I'm sorry, I ran the business plan creation and really the company um, for the first several years of getting that off the ground. And then I got involved in the sport of beach volleyball as the general manager of AVP Pro Beach Volleyball. And none of those three moves were really planned out. But by the time I was coming near the end of my tenure at AVP, I thought that I had uniquely built up an expertise in these emerging or what we referenced and called high growth sports properties to kind of take a, a Wall Street term, like a high growth stock portfolio. Yeah where there's a lot of room for upward mobility. Um, we kind of brought that term to this, to the sports world. And instead of calling them fledgling sports or up and coming sports or startup sports or emerging or what have you, we've used the term high growth. Uh, and as I was leaving AVP um, really started to develop a plan for, um, you know, how high growth sports are different from the more mature sports properties like your NFL or your major league baseball or what have you. Um, and also started to realize that we were kind of on an island by ourselves. And while I would have some discussions with the guys from the Globetrotters or from back then this fledgling sport of mixed martial arts, which right. was started and bull riding and bowling and these other sports properties, I kind of created a network of them. And all of us bemoaned the fact that, uh, you know, our situation was different from these more mature sports properties. Um, but in many cases, similar to each other. So I kind of hatched the plan to start Maestro then as a service provider to high growth sports properties, having been doing it at that point in time, 20 years of my life, having made a ton of mistakes during that time, which is obviously what you learn from the most and getting a few things right along the way. Um, we launched Maestro and uh, we now have about 15 different clients in the different high growth sports spaces and they're all different. Um, and we do different things for different ones of them. And some of them, it's an idea and we're writing a business plan. Um, and other ones, it is a, you know, more mature sports property. It's been around for a hundred years, but for one reason or another is still emerging and still needs some advice and counsel and some help getting to the next level of their development. So we really kind of locked our arms uh, around this high growth sports space and dedicated almost all of our resources of our company behind it. And we have a staff of 12 that is doing high growth sports related activities all day and every day. And uh, it's a lot of fun, but that's a long answer to your question. No, it's a great answer. It's I crazy. Like it. as you're talking, I'm getting like 10 questions coming through my head. Yeah. You know, like there's so many things I want to ask and get into. I want to harken back to one of the things you said kind of early on. Um, you had the idea and the attraction to the beach soccer. Yeah. But at that age and at that moment, so many people would, see all the things that could go wrong. Like you'd see it and say like, this is cool, but how could I take this to compete on a big level? And they talked themselves out of it. Yep. Um, 
you didn't do that, obviously. You were willing to take on these challenges. Is that part of you, like your superpower in a way is to be able to say, I can do this? And is that something that makes you somewhat unique? I think a lot of other people may have ideas, but they may not know how to push through that doubt. It yeah. sounds like you've done that. Yeah. And I think a lot of that comes from, um, you know, learning through playing sports my whole life. Uh, to kind of use the sports analogy of you got to you got to believe. Right. And you just got to put your mind and your commitment into something and believe that you're going to be successful and you're not always going to be. But if you don't believe you're going to be successful, you're certainly not going to be. So that belief is is really key. And it also came down to a discussion that I have with my father, who's kind of been my business advisor when I was all of probably 20, what, five years old. And I was thinking of buying this company and moving it to Europe at 25 years old. And I went to my dad thinking he would say, no, that's a horrible idea. <laughs> you know, it's super risky. Do what every other collegiate lacrosse player does and go to Wall Street, make a bunch of money and live that life, which I had no interest in, by the way. Um, having played lacrosse in college, that's kind of the typical lacrosse yeah. path. Uh, so, uh, and he's like, what do you got to lose? I'm like, yeah, you're right. He goes, no, seriously, what do you have? I'm like, what do you mean? He's like, you have no car, you have no wife, you have no house, you have no kids, you have nothing. And I'm like, wow. <laughs> Thanks, dad. <laughs> yeah. no, but he's like, so let's say you do this and it fails. You're right back where you are right now. So right. go for it. Maybe it's better off than what you currently have. And I'm like, all right, what the hell? Uh, and then I went there, but, uh, and, and, and took the, took the chance and looking back on it. Um, the truth is a lot of things did go wrong. And some of those things that were predictable and some of the things that weren't went wrong, but like everything else in life. And as I said earlier, you know, when things are difficult is when you, um, is when you learn the most. Right. And as I like to say, and this was a big expression that I used a lot during the whole coronavirus, and it's still the case, you know, that races are won on the uphill. Right. Um, so that is really when you find out what you're made of. And if I look back at the formative business learnings that I had, almost all of them came from the things that didn't work out as we had hoped or obstacles that we had to overcome. And of course, you try to avoid them. Inevitably, they're going to happen. How you deal with them and how you get through them, make sure that those things don't happen again and really sets the stage for hopefully less, um, you know, catastrophes happening in your business as you go forward. So yeah, a little less chaos. Confidence is key. And I'm a big believer in sports psychology. And I'm a big believer then in business psychology, where you really have to believe in yourself, um, have a plan, follow the plan, be willing to change the plan when needed. But you just got to fully believe and, in, you know, in, be enthusiastically and wholeheartedly supportive of whatever you put your mind to. And it just puts you in a much better position to succeed. It is amazing when you talk to entrepreneurs and I've interviewed a lot over my career and sports, um, you know, high level athletes, there is a, there's a commonality there. Um, there's a competitiveness, there's a drive, there's like a lot to it. I had on Nigel Eccles, who's a co-founder of FanDuel a couple of weeks ago. And he said oh, so much of like what you're saying is like the belief and the confidence and the drive is what's kind of sets you apart. And so Go back. I see so many parallels there. Go back to your, you alluded to it a little bit. You alluded to being a college lacrosse player, not just any college, University of Virginia, which is powerhouse. And then you uh, were in the National Lacrosse League for the Philadelphia Wings back in the 80s. Yep. Um, what traits come out of that? What moments come out of that that you're like, this has kind of formed me into my business person to that personality? Is yep. there a crossover? Well, first off, 
I wasn't playing for the wings in the eighties. That would make me like 70 years old. So (laughs) (laughs) just did not date myself too much. I think I was watching the wings in the eighties though. Did I have that wrong? Okay. In the eighties you were watching. I wasn't on them. I was in the nineties and in the mid nineties, four years of playing and two championships during that four years. So that was great. But that kind of relates to my story, you know, and, and I think the biggest thing that I learned, just take lacrosse. I was a multi-sport athlete, which by the way, is a bit of a, um, a miss, you know, that doesn't happen much anymore, but I was a three sport high school, all American. And that's really rare nowadays to have multi-sports, much less, um, ones that actually did all three or four different sports, whatever it might be at a high level. Um, so I learned a lot from that, right. Uh, just versatility, if nothing else. Um, secondly, uh, in high school, I was one of the better players on the team and in college. Yeah, maybe I was a better player, but then when I get to the pro ranks, I was definitely like, at the bottom of the roster, like pick up the ground ball, give it to someone else and get off the floor was pretty much my job. Yeah. Um, and maybe, you know, hit a few people and beat a few people up. That was kind of my grinder role. That sounds like fun. Right. But every team needs that. And those Philadelphia wings teams uh, had such an incredible camaraderie around them and everyone knew their role and, uh, you know, took their role extremely seriously, whether you're a goal scorer or defender or a goalie or a grinder or whatever it might be. And, um, that's one of the biggest things that I learned is you need to have a team that complements each other uh, and everyone, whether you're a grinder or a facilitator or a goal scorer or a defender, um, you've got to do your role extremely well or the whole shooting match, the whole team's not going to be able to succeed. It's not all about the goal scorers, so to speak. Um, so I learned how to be a good teammate. I also learned that you get a lot more respect if you've done the hard work. Cause in my time, even playing with the wings, I started with run roll, roll and morphed into another one. Um, but having never done that grinder role, I never would have realized how hard it is and how important it is. So I think that's kind of a, it's quasi cliched to say that, you know, I learned from sports how to be a team player, but I really did and how to be a leader. Um, and I was not necessarily the leader um, of the Philadelphia Wings. I wasn't the captain or anything along those lines, but uh, I respected the people that were, and I might've been the leader in kind of the, the little fiefdom that I had in the grinder uh, ranks um, and all of that's really necessary. But I think really learning how to, you know, socialize and get along with people internally and how you also take that to succeed as a company um, and what you're putting your, out there to the outside world. Uh, I think there's some great lessons to be learned in sports. However, uh, I am not necessarily a big fan of hiring lacrosse players for my lacrosse business or hiring, you know, X rugby players for the rugby business or ex break dancers for the break dancing business. Sometimes you can be too close to the sport if you are a, uh, a fan as well as being a business person. Um, so I think sports in general are certainly uh, beneficial to have, but I see no need for it to be the same exact sport that the you're in the business side of. You don't have much of an advantage if you happen to also play that sport. For me, it's more of a coincidence than it would be a requirement. I, I could not agree with you more. We so often deal with people and in my background in the media and the various companies I've worked for, you so often get people that are just fans yep. and fans can be distracted and fans can be, you know, not focused on the bigger business as a whole. They're either, you know, invested in a different part of it all. Um, and so that can not always be, it doesn't always translate well, right? So having people that are, that doesn't add to their story by just, you know, having that extreme fandom. I want to get back to the high growth sports side because I do yep. think that's super interesting. Um, you alluded to coronavirus a little bit and and how, you know, you, you know, everything's gained on the upswing, which I like. Um, 
what's happening in that world specifically? Because we've so often been analyzing the you know traditional sports. They're not selling revenue. They're not selling tickets. The sponsorship deals are down. This is happening. Younger fans are going away. All these things that we're worried about in in traditional you know, the higher profile big four type sports and in, in those environments um, has. The high, the high growth sports been affected more, affected less? Like, where are you sitting right now after looking back at 2020? Well, if you look at it from a from a kind of a, the property side, the, the high growth sports side, and I'll get to the fan side in a second. Um, again, not by design, but most high growth sports do not have ticket sales as a primary revenue stream. So we were a little bit, less affected than the ticket sales based entities, whether that's your major league baseballs of the world or otherwise, where ticket sales are a massive part of their business model for high growth sports. It really isn't Um, high growth sports. Generally speaking are much more about televised sponsored content. And especially when the coronavirus was going on and some of the big four weren't on television, a lot of the filler programming that they got to replace that was our stuff was high growth sports. Um, Cornhole, for instance, one of our clients, uh, we were intending to have like three or four ESPN broadcasts. We ended up having 12. Oh, um, yeah. And, you know, whether people aren't buying tickets to see Cornhole at the current time, we hope to someday get to that point. But in this level of the trajectory of the business, ticket sales aren't important. Um, and we are, it also happened to be a relatively easy sport to social distance. Um, so we could put on mask wearing athletes, social distance with limited to no audience whatsoever on television and still deliver a major amount of eyeballs to the sponsors. So one could say in some cases, um, the pandemic increased the exposure level of, of some of our sports properties. And it did affect several in the bad way too, uh, from not having tick, not being able to play or not being able to sell tickets when they did play. But as a general rule, most of our clients were able to weather the storm either naturally or with some changes to the configuration that we were able to make because of the coronavirus to still put out content and product, whether that's repurposing old games or what have you, which was the, really the case in Ultimate Frisbee, who were not able to play. Um, but we almost created a whole television season on Fox Sports 1 with recreated games and new commentators in some cases and new graphics and new sponsor integration so that these sports properties were able to have what looked like fresh television, even though it really was a repurposed prior broadcast, um, or in some cases like Cornhole, we were able to have brand new live events. So as a general rule, we were less affected by the uh, coronavirus um, uh, than some others, but it's all relative too, right? So I yeah. mean, if, if <laughs> you know, Major League Soccer reported loses a billion dollars, obviously, uh, we don't have a billion dollars to lose in most of our sports properties. So, um, and if they miss an event or two, or they lose a sponsor or two because of the coronavirus, uh, while losing a sponsor or two is not going to hurt the NFL that much, it can be pretty damaging to some of our high growth sports properties. So we were able to, um, navigate through that as best as possible. Not one of our clients went out of business. Not one of our clients had a majorly affected down year, generally speaking. And I can't, um, you know, uh, emphasized enough that that's not the case for all of them because some were more effective than others, but just the, the general nature of televised sponsored sports as the primary business model fared better than in general sports where the primary business model was so based upon 
ticket sales or game day revenues. Yeah, it's, it's so interesting to me that, you know, we we look at the industry through the lens of sports employment. And so we've been, you know, for the longest time, sales jobs, 50% of the market are, are sales jobs, right? And so we yep. see that drop off and we're telling people like, look for the other opportunities that rise up. And content's been a big one of those, right? Obviously people are starving for new content and information, data, tech, a lot of those things. You see other areas rise when certain areas fall. Yep. And it's interesting to see it from your perspective and to see that those high growth sports were still able to maintain because there was an appetite that still needed to be filled and you weren't overly indexed and overly reliant on those ticket sales. It is, um, I'm, I'm really curious too about, uh, you know, you and your team at Maestro with the various sports you've worked with, help them secure these massive sponsors. We're not talking brands that nobody's heard of. We're talking Uber, Monster Energy Drinks, Chipotle. Yeah. So to make deals like this happen in a grand sense, not just related to your own like high, high growth sports experience, but to make a deal like on this kind of a level happen. Is it more important to have a relationship, somebody inside the business or is it more important to have a good story that you can sell and associate with their brand and paint a picture for them? How does it really work when it's yeah. all happening? Um, there's a lot of misnomers in this business uh, when it comes to sponsorship sales and how they, uh, how they happen. Um, and there's a lot of reasons why a brand may sponsor a certain sports property and a lot of reasons why they may not. So I'm going to talk in generalizations, but all of them are generalizations and every single, they're like, every deal is like a snowflake. They're all unique and they happen or they don't happen for unique reasons. However, to throw out some generalizations with that caveat, um, it is not, uh, you know, this old boys club, like it apparently used to be where if you got a buddy who's the chief marketing officer of X brand, they're going to sponsor his buddy's stuff, whatever it might be. Um, that, was more the case 15, 20 years ago, has not been the case in the last 10 years. The scrutiny that every single brand has on their expenditures in the sponsorship space are magnified even more so every day than the day prior, especially during coronavirus. So the, the good old boys club of backslapping cigar smoking, you know, making a deal over, uh, over yeah. whiskey, um, long gone. It has been gone for a while. Sounds like fun though. It does sound like fun. Right? <laughs> you to mix a little bit of that in every now and again. But, right. Again, we not got nothing against whiskey. <laughs> after the deals are done and up. Right. Exactly. End of the case. We'll talk data and then we'll pour the bourbon. <laughs> right, exactly. So the uh, so that's not how it's done. Um, and first and foremost, and it's interesting because um, I've been having a lot of discussions about this recently. It's also it's also not necessarily telling a good story. It's not necessarily you know how salesy you are or aren't in the process. It really comes down to one major factor. And I joke a lot about this, uh, like, and I joke to some people that I'm like um, Will, Will Smith in that movie Hitch, right? Okay. When it comes to sponsorship sales, um, I am trying to find two different parties, uh, a brand and a, a, a property, and I'm trying to get them together and let them form a relationship with each other like hitch, right? Like someone who's trying to do the for, you know, a dating service or what have yeah. you. Um, and it comes down to what are the fundamental elements that both of these groups have and how well do they solve each other's problems, right? Um, and really it comes down to understanding the true essence of what the property is all about. What is their 
fan demographic? What is their fan psychographic? How many of those fans do they have? Where are those fans geographically? Um, what time of year are those uh, is the content, whether that's live or, or on, on some form of media, able to be consumed? Uh, how popular are the athletes? So all those things, it's, it's a full and deep understanding of, of what your property really is and truly is. And then you find brands that are looking for that same demographic, psychographic, geographic group. And then you bring them together. Then there is some salesmanship that comes in to the process. And yes, if you have relationships with someone, it is easier to get their ear to say, hey, look, I think there's a property here that would be really good for you because you're focused on the summertime, you're trying to reach millennials, and you've mm -hmm. sponsored this other sport. So I think you're showing a uh, a predisposal to potentially liking this. And then obviously the reputation that Meister was built up of having a lot of success and making these successful marriages, if you want to call them that, um, and relationships certainly helps build credibility um, in both uh, the company and in the individuals from my, in my company who would be having those discussions with decision makers. But really, it's about matchmaking. And it's about being really honest with who you are as a property and being really honest as what brands are looking for those same attributes and then doing the Will Smith thing and hitch and trying to make the two come together um, in whatever ways you can make that happen. So that's really the key to the whole thing. It's not a gimmick like, hey, we now have logos on uh, people's uh, foreheads, right? right. Um, it's not like we're now going to be able to call our conference the um, uh, Coca-Cola conference. It's not a new asset. It's not a new gimmick. It's not the whiskey club. Um, it is making sure that you fully understand the true essence of what your sports property brings to the table, understanding what the brands are looking for and find a way to make that match. So how, so data sounds like it would be really important in this too, is because I imagine on the brand side and they have, you know, they're looking at their return on investment. They want to know that they're reaching the right audience. Is that an important part of this is to really understand and dig into the data and know how to articulate in that a way that in a way that helps make the match? It is. That's kind of the next level. Um, and a lot of that comes into, um, you know, and I'll give a good example. We work in the sport of breakdancing. Right. Uh, that newly came on the scene five or six years ago. We helped at the business plan stage on that sport. Uh, and then four and a half years later, it gets accepted into the Olympic Games in Paris. Uh, it's amazing. In, in, in 2024. Really cool property to work on because of the how quickly that all came together. And by the way, we played a small role There, many other people played a bigger role. But we were there playing a role. Right. We were bringing, let's say, monster energy into that, which was a major benefit because it kept the tour afloat on top of that um, had massive global exposure that monster helped us bring to the sport once you get involved and then they start looking at the data and like okay who really are these people right um uh, they knew there was kind of a, a good brand match between breakdancing and that kind of um you know youthful urban culture that monster was was seeking um, and then they're like, well, where are they in the world? And then data became really important for us. Uh, and the data becomes really important when it comes to renewal time. And they say, okay, yeah, well, we were trying it. this, we took a shot at it. Now we understand the data. Now, you know, the second deal is always smarter than the first one. And the data has a big uh, thing to big element to do with that. Um, but a lot of times, you know, there's data that can be formed that is that or obtained that is super relevant to one type of company and irrelevant to another, right? 
Um, some might focus more on the female demographic or some might focus on, hey, who's going to buy a car in the next six months? While Monster doesn't care about that, you know, Chevy certainly does. So the type of data is usually kind of customized to the brand more so than customized to the, the property. Once you get over the basics of, you know, your age and your income and your ethnicity and your geographic location of your audience, both for on-site as well as for media. Once you get over the basics, that next level of data is really kind of brand by brand specific. Understanding what they're trying to accomplish with that data is super important too. And putting together, you know, the key performance indicators during your deal with them so that when it comes time for renewing and it comes time for analyzing the return on investment, you know, like if I deliver data to Monster about how many people are going to buy a car in the next six months, they're just not going to care. Right. Um, obviously, that's a that's an extreme example. Um, but understanding what they do care about and being able to deliver on that becomes super important. So I think the the sports that you're representing and the high growth properties from axe throwing to ultimate frisbee to break dancing, I think it's super cool. I really do. I'm, I'm intrigued by all of it, but I have to imagine sometimes, and maybe this is just me and my own paranoias and anxieties, but you get a Chipotle on the phone and you're like trying to pitch them on, Hey, we want you to be a sponsor with the, the pro break dancing tour. Is there ever any, any moments of self doubt? Are there any moments like, I don't know if they're going to understand and really connect with who we are and what we're trying to accomplish here, or is that belief come through in everything you're doing? We're like, no, they, they need to be a part of this. And here's why. Right. Well, um, every now and again, but not if it goes through the typical process, which is um, like, we're not reaching out to any brand that we aren't convinced that if they sponsor in this case, breakdancing, they're going to, accomplish their objectives more than if they sponsored something else. So like I'm not reaching out to Mercedes Benz for breakdancing, right? Um, it's just not the demo fits not there. And if I got right. on the phone with someone from Mercedes Benz, I would, would struggle to convince them, you know, uh, why a, uh, an audience, which in their case is looking for high net worth individuals, the high net worth individuals are not the fans or the participants in breakdancing. So it's just not a natural fit there. I, it's, it's, fitting a square peg into a round hole. Um, but if I'm on the phone with someone who I know for sure is interested in this demo, then yeah, um, I have a ton of confidence that if they're able to execute on this, that they're going to have a great return on their investment. So a lot of it comes down to creating that target list and putting together matches, which we know on paperwork and then hoping that they work for all the other reasons as well. But a lot of it comes down to, when I say this, the targeting process, the process of targeting specific brands for specific properties is key. That element of the matchmaking process is key. And if you screw that up, you're going to find yourself in some uncomfortable discussions. Um, but for the most part, um, that screening is done by really common sense, first and foremost. Yeah. Secondly, research. Uh, I'm not going to be getting on the phone with a, uh, a brand manager of a brand that's got no business talking to a certain sports property. So usually that weeds itself out before it happens, those discussions. How much are you able to pull from? Because each one of these properties, they seem so distinct and different, right? They're all high growth sports. They're all niche. They're all whatever you want to label it as. But they're all very different too. Different audiences, different people, different yeah. like demographics, as you're saying. Um, how are you, are you able to take the knowledge and previous experiences and really apply it to the next one? Or are you kind of starting over from scratch each time? Because I would imagine even the stuff you learned in your 20s working with beach soccer, does that apply to what you're doing now with axe throwing or like, are you kind of 
every time having to hit reset in your brain and starting with a fresh set of eyes? Uh, I would say it's probably the 80-20 rule. Um, 80% of the knowledge is usable for the next client and 20% is totally new and specific to them. So, I mean, and all of these have some similarities too. And first off, you know, what type of sport is it? Are you domestic or international, right? That's a big initial That's question. Big, yeah. Um, are you a season or are you a tour? Okay. Because um, the touring sports have more things in common with each other than the, the ones that have, you know, a city-based home team playing home and away games and they have multiple events in the same venue and they're only in 10, 15 venues across the country? Or is it a tour that is going all across the world or all across the country? So once you figure out some of those basic parameters and then you figure out, are they going after kids or Gen Z or millennials or Gen X or everybody, or even in some cases, uh, you know, do they attract an older demographic? Um, once you figure out those basic parameters, um, you are able to learn a lot from it. And like I worked in, say, lacrosse and I've worked in uh, downhill skiing, right? Both kind of upscale sports. It reaches that uh, kind of higher net worth individual Um you know, one was a league and one was a, a ski resort based event business. So there's some similarities to all of these that you can mix and match. And it becomes sort of uh, natural over time. Um, but the brands that are attracted to really the demographics and psychographics of one sport, they're kind of predetermined to be um, attracted to another sport as well. So I'd say it's about 80%, 80% is stuff that I've learned in the experience and 20% is brand new and very specific to this, to the sport. Like ax throwing is a good example of one that's a little bit out there. Right. Yeah. Um, uh, and as was breakdancing and as, as all of them are for various reasons, but uh, you know, there's certain elements of, of ax throwing, which have nothing in common at all with beach soccer. Right. Um, so, uh, but that's what makes it fun. And that adaptability also was going to make ax throwing more uh, attractive to a certain group of sponsors than say beach soccer is. And some things make beach soccer more attractive to a certain group of sponsors than ax throwing would be. Um, and then others just might want to you know, be reaching the masses. Like we have a client tiger bomb who is kind of battling this, you know, lots of these new products that are coming to market, especially a lot of products that are, um, uh, you know, CBD based with kind of rubs and oils and what have you. So they've got to get the word out there. So they're just trying to reach the masses of millennials and yeah. multiple sports of ours reaches masses of millennials. So Tiger Bomb sponsoring three of our different sports properties because they all happen to reach masses of millennials in an authentic way. Um, and they were sponsoring breakdancing and they're sponsoring uh, Ultimate Frisbee. Um, and so sometimes the same brand is able to be layered into multiple sports properties uh, and that's great. Right. And they've yeah. built trust and respect for us that, you know, what we say we're going to do, we actually get it done. And then uh, one deal does lead to the next in that case, but still, um, you know, they're not getting involved with ax throwing. Right. Um, right. But you know, there, but there are some other similarities where they do make sense to kind of cross over from one to the next. So I'm a content guy through and through, have been throughout my entire career. It seems to me, and this is no like, you know, crazy uh, expertise here, but um, the, all these sports are tailor-made for content. How important is that side of it? The viral videos, the social campaigns, the visual aspect. Is content and video, 
help in reaching the right audience? Because that's how a lot of the millennials and younger generations communicate anyway, is through social and the, the shareable content. I mean, that's a great way to stand out. Is that an important part of the play here too? It is. Uh, and we look at it, there's really one major number that we need to figure out with every single one of our properties, which is what we call the aggregated audience. And it's the aggregated annual audience um, that we put the number on. And in today's day and age, uh, especially with these younger, more you know, youthful sports properties, um, it's less to do with, you know, are you on NBC network every Sunday? And it's, well, what's your aggregated audience? How many people are you reaching? Um, and how many of those people that we're reaching will have uh, an exposure to the fact that say tiger bomb is associated with breakdancing, right? Um, so we talk all about aggregated audience and in some levels, we don't care if the eyeballs that we're getting are from television or from Instagram or from a live stream or from a post-produced piece of content that someone sees on YouTube. Um, the key for us is to try to ensure that a brand's message is being portrayed into that content in a way in which makes that brand look good and enhances their association with the property, but also gets out there in mass quantities. So we try to encourage and help our clients reach the largest aggregated audience that they can. Um, and for certain brands, Network television is important for others. Cable television is important for others. Streaming is totally fine for others. And like Monster Energy, for example, back to breakdancing, they didn't focus. We, you know, we've never had a television broadcast of one of our breakdancing events. Um, but the global eyeballs that are watching live and even more impressively, the global eyeballs that are watching the post-produced clips that we put together from the events is in the hundreds of millions. And wow. that's where they get their, their value. And if we instead focused our time and effort on, you know, getting an event onto NBC for an hour and we reach several hundred thousand people, hey, breakdancing's on NBC. Great. Well, breakdancing that isn't on NBC just got 100 million views of one clip of an unbelievable moment that happened at this event globally. And that's impactful. So we look at it as an aggregated audience. And what kind of content do you want to put together to get the aggregated audience, right? Um, with some of our clients, you know, we even get into, okay, we work with Major League Rugby, right? We had a discussion with them recently about um, what type of clips do we want to have out there? Ones where there's massive collisions, right? Right. They get a lot of views, but is that really the the brand identity you want? Yeah, no, it's not. So we have to obviously you, you don't want to cheapen your brand ever just to get eyeballs. Yeah. Same time, if your true essence of your brand is coming through on content that is attractive and does increase your aggregated audience, then we're all for it, and that's what we strive for. That's amazing. That's really great stuff. So okay, we're talking high growth sports here. And it's, it's amazing your viewpoint for all of these niche sports and what you can do to help them and build them up. Apply that to Maestro. What's the high growth plan for, for your organization? Where does well, it go from here? I, it, it sounds somewhat cliches, but continue to deliver for our clients, right? Um, and, you know, we now have clients like massively growing sport of pickleball is a client of ours. The sport of spike ball is a client of ours. We're, we're building three brand new sports properties. One doesn't even have a name yet that we've agreed upon that we're building. So um, keep on helping our clients be successful. Um, that is what's going to help them the most. And obviously we care and love all of our clients, like our children, and we want them all to grow up and um, in, in, in theory, in the end, not need us anymore. Once they kind of grow up and go off 
go to college and get out of college as, a, as a <laughs> they can go and flourish on their own. Right. Um, but continue to deliver value for them. Um, and in some cases that value is new brands. In some cases it's renewing sponsorships. In some cases it's writing a better business plan or coming up with a new strategy or helping them increase their aggregated audience, whatever it might be. So it's cliched, but it's true. We need to continue to deliver for our clients. We've done that. And we also need to make sure, and we've done a good job of managing this too, that we don't get, um, you know, so big that we're not able to really give each client the personal attention that they deserve. And we've, we say no to a fair number of prospective clients, either because we don't have the bandwidth to do it um, uh, or because of, um, you know, we just don't think that what we're going to be able to provide to them is going to really accelerate them in a way that they would like. So yeah. uh, we try and find the right clients and only work with enough of them at the same time. And we get, you know, we, we get a fair amount of pushback, like, Hey, you have so many clients now, are you going to still be able to service us? And thankfully there's many more people than me in my business that are really, really good at what they do. Um, and they've taken leadership roles and there are three or four of our clients that are just, you know, so much better handled by other members of my team, which is great. Um, so we just have to make sure that we, we grow smartly. We continue to deliver for our current clients and then let that work speak for itself. So that's really our strategy is do right by your existing clients and everything else will take care of itself. Gabby, this has been incredible. I want to finish up with this. I mean, there's so much insight here that you've provided. I want to think to our think to our audience for a second too, who has, tends to be on the younger side and trying to get into the sports industry. Yeah. Your role requires marketing and sponsorship, negotiation, leadership, facility management. You're doing everything, right? Yeah. But if you look back and you could tell young people like, hey, if you want to work in the sports industry, you better make sure you do X or you better make sure you know this. Like what kind of advice would you share for somebody who's kind of starting that journey? Well, two things. Uh, internships are the, are the pathway. Um, you need to get internships and you need to kick ass while you're there and not, you know, and, and just earn the right to have people who work at that organization vouch for you. That's the key. Um, I, I've never hired anyone that someone that I know in the business didn't vouch for them. Um, so, and that's, I, I like to joke, there's a thousand people making hiring decisions in the sports business. I don't know if that number is about right or wrong, but still it's a number. Um, and we all kind of are connected to each other. Um, and I'm never going to hire anyone that one of my buddies didn't vouch for and say, yeah. yeah, this girl worked for me. She was awesome. She's really good at this. I'm like, okay, let's go. Right. Yeah. So get the internships, impress the people that you work with to the point where they vouch for you. That's my first order of advice. Secondly, um, if you generate revenue, you're always going to be needed. So my second piece of advice is sales is not a dirty word. It's actually usually the lifeblood of every organization that you work with. And if you're able to generate revenue, um, you're going to be able to make a good living for yourself. Now, whether you like I probably spend half, maybe less than half of my time on physically generating revenue, um, but I know that I can do it. I understand what it takes to get it done. And if you can do that, then you are always going to be in much higher demand than many of the other very important elements and roles that happen within an organization. Um, but if someone is up and coming in this business and they want to do well, get an internship or an entry level job, learn how to generate revenue 
And then you can start to write your own ticket. Once you build up more and more expertise and more of a reputation as a revenue generator, you're going to be able to move ahead. One person's opinion, but that's. uh, No, it's so true. It's funny. I tell this all the time on the show. I say, you know, I've had these really cool jobs where I've been a television producer. I'm a podcast host. I've written published articles. I've done all these cool things. Every one of my bosses has had a sales background. So there's a high ceiling there. You generate revenue. You're always going to have a role. I echo everything you're saying completely. So every step above me has always been somebody with a sales background. So if that tells you anything right there, you might think what I'm doing is cool, but the person ahead of me is is uh, is the person that has that revenue generating ability. So uh, put that in perspective. You know, if, if, if you could do PR for words, the word sales needs a PR agency, right? It really does. It really does. Because for somehow that became a dirty word. Yeah. Uh, like, ew, a salesman, right? Um, but uh, as I think of it, uh, every time that we bring in a new client for a company, we're, we're, we're doing that company a favor, right? We've, we've helped them find a solution to their problem. And uh, it should be problem solvers instead of sales or something Absolutely along right. those lines. There's got to be a better way for the word sales to have a PR agency that's going to con- concoct a, a different mindset that the world should have about that word because it is the lifeblood of these organizations. Everyone wants it, but somehow still it has a stigma attached to it that it shouldn't. It should be the opposite way around. But um, Totally agree. Totally agree. Know. Gabby, this is fantastic. I'm so excited for everything you have going on with Maestro. Thanks for giving us a little lens into how you guys operate and what the future looks like for you. So thanks so much for coming on. I know our audience is going to love this. You got it, Brian. My pleasure. I really enjoyed so many parts of that conversation. I'll hit on a few specifically. One, Gabby talking about what he learned from being a highly competitive athlete and how that translates to the sports industry. It stands out to me a lot. I know we have a lot of sports athletes, student athletes in our audience. So take that and learn from it because he really emphasized learning teamwork, learning leadership, really understanding how he fits in things and seeing the bigger picture. I think that is a important thing we all need to hit on. I also really enjoyed the fact of understanding how their business works a little differently than what we're normally accustomed to, meaning coronavirus, they're not so dependent on ticket sales. The fact that they can thrive by filling in the gaps created by coronavirus really was interesting to me from just a business standpoint. So many interesting parts of that conversation and and his approach to sponsorship deals. I mean, this is huge information. This is really the kind of things that you all need to be exposed to and understand. You know, walking into deals with Chipotle and and all these other monster energy drinks and Mercedes Benz and having a reason and an approach and a why and an understanding of why the two partnerships should happen. uh, It's just so interesting. It's just such an interesting part of the industry. And it translates to every part of the industry. It's not just this idea of high growth sports. This is this is across the board. Such an interesting conversation. Thank you to Gabby for coming on the show. Thank you to for you to you for listening. Please remember to rate and review and subscribe and all those great things that make our podcast grow because that's what's important here. The more we grow, the more incredible guests we can get, the more information we can share that will help you in your journey. So thanks for listening. Stick with us. We'll be back every week, twice a week, Mondays and Wednesdays. We'll be here. <laughs>